Exodus chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Exodus chapter 6 this morning. Glad to see you guys here. Time change Sunday. Hadn't kept you guys away. You guys are here and, I mean, for all accounts and purposes, on time. So, small miracles here. Um, Exodus chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And uh, as, we, as we stand here, you know, I joked a few minutes ago that, that winter is, is almost over here, but it's March. We're well into March at this point, uh, and it's crazy. I mean, this is already the second Sunday in March, and every year it seems that things get faster, and I've started to realize this is just part of what it means to get older. Time passes faster. I think I've decided that, that getting older is kind of like, uh, like what it would be if I was trying to ski down a, a mountain. The older I, I get, the more momentum I've gained and the faster I'm going down the hill. And somewhere about halfway through here, uh, I realize that I've completely lost control and I'm still picking up speed. Like that's pretty much how things are going. And so here we are in, in March and we're already uh, full speed into 2019 and life has just kind of taken over here. So uh, it's March, and for, for some of you, that, that means a lot of different things. The, the month of March, for some of you, uh, means that, that springtime is, is almost here, that, that all the things that come with that will be here soon. Birds will be singing, um, you know, flowers will be, bl- be blooming, pollen will be in the air, and, and we'll all be sneezing, and, and, and eyes will be watering here very soon. That's what March means to some of you guys. For, for some folks... Uh, March means St. Patrick's Day and drinking way too much beer. And then others, that means that, uh, that, that really everything is just about to change for the year and, and you're moving on into things and you've got spring break coming up and a beach ahead of you. That's what March means to you. But for many, many folks, March means one thing. Do we know what that is, guys? Basketball, March Madness, absolutely right. And that is here. It is time for March Madness. It's time for teams to get their act together and be ready to play in the NCAA tournament. And this year, Tennessee has, has got one of the, the best teams in the country, yesterday's game notwithstanding. Uh, this is not the norm for us in basketball, but it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. I hope you guys have. And the last couple seasons have been pretty, pretty good for us. This season was especially good for, for Tennessee. They were number one in the polls for four straight weeks. That's a record for Tennessee. At one point, they were 11-0 and in the SEC. They finished 15-3, and uh, a remarkable season by any standards, and certainly pretty good for, for where we are. Again, yesterday's game notwithstanding. But here's the thing. The mark of any great team in any sport, what really separates the good teams from the greatest teams is that you're able to call that team undefeated, no losses, undefeated, that everyone that stepped to the line to take on this team walked away losers, and this team walked away a champion, undefeated. Doesn't happen often in basketball. The last team that went an entire season without losing a game was in 1976 when Indiana did it. Tennessee fans can't name a basketball team that has done that, but we can, we can name a football team that has done that, the 1998 champ, national championship team, undefeated. But here's the thing. Even that team that, that we Tennessee fans love so much, even that team, it took a few small miracles. Opening game was a, a close field goal in the last seconds in order to win. 
Of course, it took a small miracle from God himself to cause Clint Sterner to fumble against Arkansas for us to come back and win that game. But the bottom line is we finish undefeated. But we were pushed. We were challenged. It took, it took just a, a, a crazy turn of events for us to get to that place. It took a few fortunate bounces that if they had gone the other way, that season could have been very different for Tennessee. But this morning, we're going to read about a God who is absolutely undefeated. Not only is he undefeated, he has no rivals. He has no one to push him. He has no one to challenge him. He has no one that can step, step to him and say, I dare you, let's go head to head. He has no challengers. He is king. He is God. No one will push him into overtime. He is not a God that might be worshipped in Egypt. He is the God. And he's about to show you and I and the whole nation of Egypt just how far away we are from being able to take over his throne. So we're going to be in chapter 6 uh, and then primarily in chapter 7 as we, as we get going this morning. But we'll start in chapter 6 and then move to 7. And we'll be looking at this God who is undefeated. And as we do this, we're kind of entering into a new phase of this book. It's been building for a little bit. We've been talking about Moses. We've been talking about his background. We've been talking about who he is and where he came from. There's been a lot of foreshadowing about this This it was to come, but we haven't really got to the meat of the story yet. But this morning, we really start to do that. The big showdown is about to happen, and it's really going to be our focus for the next couple of months starting today. We're really entering into what this book is, is probably the most known for. If you were to ask someone about the book of Exodus, they would tell you that it's, a, it's about the plagues against Egypt and it's about, it's about Israel crossing the Red Sea. And that's right what we're on the cusp of here. Uh, and so we're really, we're really getting into this thing now. So let's look up uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 10, right where we left off last week and let that lead us into where we are this week. Exodus chapter 6, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from his land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, If the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me, since I am such a poor speaker? Again, Moses with the same line. We've heard this three or four times now. Just kind of gets old. Like Moses, he's driven this home to you. You're going to be fine. But he just continues the same thing. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. So again, Moses is asking God, if they're not going to listen to me, if my own people won't listen to me, why in the world would Pharaoh listen to me? This is dumb. This plan is dumb. I'm dumb. Can we just scrap this? Can we just move on? I'm going to get killed. My people are going to get killed. My family is going to get killed. This plan is not good. Everything is going to fall apart. He knew everything was about to go south for him if he had to go through with this plan. So what does God do? What is God's response to Moses? God pretty much ignores him. He gives him commands on what he's supposed to do. And he he basically says, well, you know what, Moses? Insecurities or not, you're going to do it anyway. So let me tell you how this is going to work out. Now, he'll come back and he'll give Moses a little bit more reassurances about what's going to happen. But this is essentially how he begins. Moses, you're going to go. Here's the commands that I give you. 
And then everything seems to stop at this point if you're in the narrative. If you're looking uh, in the scriptures, what you see is that you read through this, you get to the end of of, of verse 13, it kind of lays all this out, and then you have this break. And if if your Bible has like uh, subtitles, subheadings, it says the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. So we've got this break in the action. This is kind of like a commercial break when you're reading this. You know, the original movie, there's no break. This goes right from Moses talking about God, God giving commands, right to God responding to Moses' objections. There's no break in the original movie. But here in the TV version that we've got, the action gets a break. This made-for-TV version of this has got some ads. And so this sponsor break that we've got to deal with here is apparently sponsored by Ancestry.com because we've got to go through this whole portion of of Exodus chapter 6 that's randomly about the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. So why is this here? And if I'm just completely honest with you, I don't have a clue. I have no idea why this is right here. I've read a bunch of commentaries. I've looked up a bunch of different things. I've considered a lot of different things. I have no idea why this is right here in the middle of this book, right here in this spot, why we get this commercial break. Now, it makes sense why we would need a genealogy of Moses and Aaron because that's essentially your your fingerprint. It identifies you. It it identifies who you are. That makes a lot of sense. But why here? Why in this one place? We know that the genealogy of Moses and Aaron is there to identify them. This is what it says at the end of it in verse 26. In verse 26, it says, It was this Aaron and Moses whom the the Lord told Bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So what this is saying is, hey, here's the guys that did this. It's not some other Moses and Aaron. It's this Moses and Aaron that follows this lineage, this genealogy. It's these guys. We know that that's why it's in the book altogether. But why does the action stop right here? I don't know. I'm not sure. But I know that we can learn from this and that we can see some things from this. We can garner from some lessons from this. And it can be easy for us to look back on these guys in the Old Testament and think that those guys in the Old Testament had something we don't. After all, Moses had a burning bush, right? It can be easy to think that those guys had something that we just don't. That God chose them because they were great or because they were kings or because they were warriors. It can be easy to assume that Moses fits in this position here, that he's in this position to go before Pharaoh because, after all, he's Moses. I mean, we all know Moses. The secular world knows Moses. He's Moses. He's a great leader. He's the leader of the Old Testament. He's Moses. He's not like me. He's he's Moses. But the Bible is abundantly clear at every single turn. Even the best men are only men at best. Moses is a mess. His family line is a mess. You read through some of this stuff and you could point out embarrassment after shame, after disappointment. He's a mess. His family's a mess. So what in the world's going on here? The reality is that your family doesn't determine what God can do through you. So we see this, we see this whole thing, and this whole genealogy is a mess. It identifies Moses, but it doesn't have to define Moses. His family doesn't determine what God can do through him. Neither do his failures. We've seen that already. Moses' failures don't determine what God can do through him, and your failures don't define what God can do through 
you. The best men are only men at best, but that doesn't mean that, that, they, that, that God can't use us, that God can't, can't use you in this world. You see, Moses, as we've seen, didn't start off as Moses. He started off as a cast-off and a failure. What made Moses Moses was God. So my question this morning is, what's he going to do through you? How is God going to use you? What kind of self-doubt do you have, just like Moses, that says, well, I can't do this because of this, and I can't do this because of this, and then I've got this background, and I've got this crazy uncle, and my dad is, is, really, is really rough, and I, so I've got this background that's no good. I've got these failures that are here right now. None of those things limit God. God can and will use you. If you are faithful to him and his word, your mind may not be able to conceive what God can do through you. Moses surely couldn't. He thought he was a poor speaker. He thought he was an even worse leader. But God is undefeated. Look in chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord answered Moses. So we're picking back up after the commercial break here, right in the middle of the same conversation. The Lord answered Moses. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you. But I will put my hand on Egypt and bring the divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by the great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron, men in their 80s, go before Pharaoh and are about to embark on some seriously treasonous stuff. They had plenty of reasons to be afraid. You'll hear a lot about David and Goliath over the next couple of weeks if you're following basketball at all. And that's meant to be the ultimate underdog story of the little guy beating the big guy. But Moses and Aaron are, are about to go up against Pharaoh. They'd give anything to have the odds that David had against Goliath. Not only do they have no chance, they have no confidence. At least David had confidence. At least David could say, well, I know that God delivered me from the bear, and I know that God has done this, and I know that God has done that, and I know that God can do all these things, so I have confidence to go against Goliath. Moses and Aaron, Moses is like, well, I know I failed at this, and I know I failed at this, and I know my family's crazy, and I know that I'm not a good speaker, and I know that I'm a terrible leader, and I know nobody will follow me. They got nothing that they can count on. Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh is not just a mismatch. It is a mismatch of epic proportion. They have no chance and they have no confidence. Their opponent thought himself to be God. Thought himself to be twice the God that Yahweh was. But Moses and Aaron listened to God's word and they were faithful to it. But let's remember, they were faithful to it not because they were great. They were faithful to it because they believed that God was great. 
So without further ado, let's see how this whole scene plays out when finally, after all this buildup, Moses finally goes before Pharaoh. Let's see what happens. Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went, in, went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. So far, so good. God has shown up. God has done his part. This was, after all, how the game needed to be played. Pharaoh wanted to know just what kind of God he was up against. So he invites Moses and Aaron in there, and he says, All right, you want to talk to me about this Yahweh? Let's see what this Yahweh is made of. What's he got? Prove to me he's real. Prove to me he's strong. I want to see what he can do. So Moses tells Aaron, Aaron, throw your rod down. Throws his rod down, turns into a giant snake. If this Yahweh was something that needed to be proven, finally, Pharaoh had it. Pharaoh had the proof. This miracle had happened right in front of him. It was undeniable. But Pharaoh wasn't quite ready to back down yet. He was not overly impressed. He wanted to make sure that this wasn't some kind of routine magic trick that some of his own guys could pull off. So look in verse 11. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. So these magicians show up and they do the same thing. They take the rod, they throw it down, and it turns to a snake. And now we've hit a snag. Well, hang on just a minute. If Yahweh is so great, why is this the only trick he can do? If Yahweh is so great, why is this all that he can do? I've got magicians that can do the same thing. So maybe we can put Yahweh amongst the other hundreds of gods that we have, and we can stick his name on a wall, but he doesn't compare to me, Pharaoh. I am a much bigger god. My magicians can do what your god can do. That's nothing special. Moses' miracle that he shows to Pharaoh doesn't quite have the shock and awe factor that he thought it was going to have going for him. He knew God was powerful. He knew what God was capable of. But now the Egyptian magicians had just done the same thing. So now what? Pharaoh's snark has grown. His dismissive smile is growing. And in verse 12, each one threw down his staff and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. So as if the miracle of turning the, 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 the staff into a serpent wasn't enough, God goes now a step further. When the Egyptians were able to replicate the magic trick, and now we don't know how this happened. We're not there. We're not for sure. Did they offer some kind of sleight of hand that made it look that way? Or did they have legitimate contact with darker spirits that enabled them to do this? It says it was because of their occult practices, so it very well may have been that. But they matched the miracle. Until Moses and Aaron's staff turns and swallows the Egyptian snake whole. This is a big deal. We don't really see this as a big deal other than this kind of like, you know, my snake can whip your snake so we win. Ha ha, we're, we're, we're good here. This is not, it's much bigger than that. 
Have you ever thought it odd that God would use a serpent for this miracle? I thought this was odd. I mean, we know the background of the serpent in the Bible so far, of what we've been given in the book of Genesis. Why would God choose a serpent? Why, why doesn't God have Moses turn the, the chair into a lion or something like that? That would be cooler. Why, why does it have to be a serpent? What's the point in this? You see, we miss this. We don't understand this. But the reason for this is because this is full of symbolism for Egypt. And the symbolism would not have been lost on anyone that was there. You guys ever seen a picture of King Tut? You ever seen the, 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 the thing he's buried in? You seen this before? Does that look like anything to you? It's meant to look like a snake. This is the headdress that, that he would wear, that, a, that a, an Egyptian pharaoh w- would wear. This is how they would be buried, to look like a snake. You can see there's two different types of snakes that are up on the top of his headdress that are there. It was meant to look like a snake. Now, King Tut was likely one to two centuries prior to this event that we're reading about, but the symbolism still would have been there. It still would have held. You see, it's got all these, these, these things to make Pharaoh look like a snake. And that's because the Egyptian people believed that the gods lived among them in the form of these snakes. And that, that for them, power was symbolized by the snake. And so Pharaoh, being the god of the people, if Pharaoh was a god and the highest god among the Egyptian people, then he had to be the chief snake, the protector of the Egyptian people. And this is why they use this kind of imagery, because they put so much stock in the power of a snake. So when Moses' snake eats up both of Pharaoh's snakes, a very loud message is being sent. Pharaoh, you may think yourself a god. You may think yourself a rival or even superior to Yahweh. But you are nothing but a man, and I will rule over you. If Pharaoh is the king snake to rule all snake, then what does that say when the snake gets eaten? And that's the point. Yahweh is undefeated. And now we're getting somewhere. Moses' speech problems haven't slowed progress at all. In fact, things turned out to be just fine. God shows up and he's shown out. Pharaoh has been put in his place. And so does Pharaoh now acknowledge that he's been beat and bows his knee to Yahweh? Not a chance. Verse 13. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Oh yeah. Forgot this was going to happen. Pharaoh doesn't back down. Not even for a second. God is undefeated, unrivaled, unchallenged really, but his would-be rival will not back down. Why not? Why wouldn't Pharaoh just acknowledge the symbolism and the statement that was just made and give them their holiday weekend and say, go on, go worship Yahweh. This is the first of the the miracles where it's obvious that that Yahweh has won. That Yahweh has stood up, he's accepted the challenge, he's devoured the challenger, and he's won. We're going to see ten more coming up over the next few weeks. This is the first one. Why doesn't Pharaoh back down here? He's been beaten. Just accept your defeat. Be a good loser and walk off and say, you know what? Fine, Israel. Your God is better than me. You win. Why doesn't Yahweh do that? Or why doesn't Pharaoh do that? 
Well, according to verse 13, it says it's because Pharaoh's heart was hard. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened. This is a phrase we're going to look at a few times over the next few weeks. It comes up a lot in this book, and it comes up a lot in the next few chapters. We've already seen it a time or two in this book. Even once earlier, when we read through in chapter 7 towards the beginning, this came up. And this is one of those verses that can really trip people up. can make people do a lot of gymnastics to get around what Scripture so clearly says here. We saw it in verse 13, and it simply says, Pharaoh's heart hardened. That one's simple enough to understand. We get that. Pharaoh's heart hardened. Sometimes guys just won't listen. Sometimes people are stubborn. Stubborn. But it says something else elsewhere that's really similar, but it's a little bit different. If you go back to Exodus chapter 4 in verse 21, what it says is, The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you do all the wonders before Pharaoh. So that's what we've just read, right? He's gone before Pharaoh. He's done the miracle. And then he says, But I, Yahweh, will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And then back in chapter 7, right where we just read earlier, read right over it. Chapter 7, verse 3. And it says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Okay, this is where things start to get uncomfortable. This is where things start to challenge us a little bit, start to press on us a little bit, start to make us ask questions that we would rather leave to theory, but they're playing out in real life right here. Pharaoh is rejecting God's power and his supremacy over himself. Pharaoh. He's rebelling and he's bucking against this God that has just embarrassingly beat him in his own game of magic. But why? Why is he bucking against this? Why is he rebelling against this? Why is he pushing against Yahweh? It's because his heart is hard. But why is his heart hard? Verse 3 says because God made it that way. So what do we do with this? This is all over the place in the book of Exodus. It says in some places that God hardened his heart. It says in what we just read that his heart was hardened. Like it just, it was. It doesn't say who the active person is. In other places it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's all, I mean, it says all of those things. It says all three of them. We could look at all of them, put together a nice little chart, but it said multiple times all three ways. And this is where people get nervous. And they start asking questions like, can God do that? Can God harden someone? Can he harden someone's heart? I thought God gave us free will. Isn't that what this is all about? Is that God's up there, we're down here, and we have free will to choose whatever we want. We have have free will. Did Pharaoh not have free will like the rest of us? If so, whenever this says that God hardens his heart, how does that work? There's a lot I could say about this, and we'll talk more about it over the next few, few weeks. But for, de- for, to de- for today, the point I want to make is this. When I said that God was undefeated and unrivaled, I make no exceptions to that. Not one. Humanity nor human will included. 
God has no rivals. That includes us. That includes our will. There is nothing that is not under God's sovereign hand. Nothing. It has no bounds. God was 100% sovereign over Pharaoh. Just as he is you, just as he is me. The text is clear as day in this. That has not changed and it never will. He has no rivals. Too often we like to pit human free will against God as if God can come so far, he can get right to the edge, but God can come no further because he won't touch our free will. Our free will is sovereign. That's not the biblical view. That's not what the Bible teaches. So often what we like to say is that he can bring us to our knees. He can do anything, but he can't make me do anything because it's my free will. It's mine and he can't take it from me. I want to be clear here. We are in the deep end of the swimming pool this morning. And I know it's a lot on Time Change Sunday to dive into this kind of stuff. But here it is. God's authority doesn't stop at our will. You say, well, wait, hang on then. How is Pharaoh responsible for these things? If God's in control of Pharaoh, how is Pharaoh responsible for these things? How can he be held accountable? After all, it's God that is here that's doing these things. It's God that's hardening his heart. There's a couple of things that I want to help kind of give us some framework, and it may soften the tension for you just a little bit, but this is a mystery that we're talking about here. So first, a couple of things that, that can kind of give us a little bit more of a framework for here. First, Pharaoh was not a neutral party to begin with here before God decided to harden his heart. We don't start out life neutral when it comes to God. We don't go through life perfectly straddling the good and evil fence, just waiting for someone to come and tip us one direction or the other. Our wills are not some kind of carnival game with God over here and Satan over here and they're shooting the water gun at a target and whichever one holds it on the target longest wins and we tip to that side. And the prize that they get is us. That is not how that works. Pharaoh wasn't neutral here. God didn't have to push Pharaoh anywhere. He was born firmly in the hard heart camp. Not the neutral heart camp. He was born firmly in the hard heart camp. And so were you. And so was I. We all are. We aren't neutral. We're all sinners. We're all hard-hearted, stubborn, stiff-necked rebels to God. Every one of us. We're born that way. From the very beginning. All of us. We aren't neutral. So for God to harden our hearts simply requires that God do nothing at all. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Dead. That's how we started. Not neutral, and he came and pulled us over to his side, but dead and buried on the evil side in a grave with a tombstone over us, he brought us back to life. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So does God actively harden our hearts? According to Exodus, sometimes he does. But he doesn't rob us of our neutrality or our innocence when that happens. 
It simply reaffirms what is already true. We are sinners that hate God. That's point one, which flows into point two. As God hardens Pharaoh's heart, he never, at no point, never goes against Pharaoh's will. For those of you that are firmly in the free will camp, maybe this will ease things for you just a bit. He never goes against Pharaoh's will in any of this. Pharaoh's will is, free will is not the concern of the Bible. Your free will is not the concern of the Bible. God's sovereignty is what the book of Exodus is about, and it's what the Bible is about, and it is affirmed over and over and over and over and over again. Have we not seen that already in six chapters here, how sovereign God is over all these events? Pharaoh's free will is not the point, but it's there. Pharaoh's free will is never the sovereign choice maker in this book. Let's make that clear. Pharaoh's free will is not the sovereign choice maker in this book, but God never pulls puppet strings and makes him dance either. He's not some sort of pre-programmed robot that, that God is just saying, run this operating system. Pharaoh is not a mindless, heartless, programmed robot. He is a living, breathing, free will acting creation. And in his free will, he chooses against God every time. And if God doesn't act, so will you and so will I. I do not pretend to know the depths of this mystery. But I can tell you and at least go as far as how, the, how far the Bible goes. God is absolutely the active force here in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But I can also tell you that Pharaoh's heart was hard to start with. And I can also tell you that God willingly works in ways that are fully compatible with our own wills and never forces us to do anything we don't want to do. If you act against God, it's because you wanted to. If you act towards God, and you act in favor of God, it's because you wanted to. Something has to change inside of you before that's going to happen. But if you're the one that acts against God, it's because you wanted to. Your free will is not infringed upon. God acknowledges our free wills and our free choices. God acknowledges those plenty in Scripture. Again, I want to be clear, it's never the sovereign decision maker, but God gives us free wills. And for those of us that want to stand and say, but I have a free will, God can't tell me what to do. I would just submit to you that scripture says God's completely in control. And for those of us that want to hang so tightly to our free wills, I would beg of you, be careful how tightly, how tightly you want to hang on to that. Because God acknowledges our free wills and our free choices, and he knows that those things are more than enough to condemn us for all eternity. Our free will will not save us. It will not bring us to God. It will not choose God. Our free will, apart from God, will rebel against God Every single time. Unless God does something that shows us that not only is he undefeated, but he is also full of mercy, long-suffering, and compassion. We are in trouble. And our free will that we cling to so preciously will not be something that we want to parade around on the day before God. 
our free will will condemn us. He's about to show Pharaoh. He's about to show the Egyptian people. And he's about to show the Israelites that he's undefeated. He's also about to show them that he offers mercy to those that would take it. And so it is with us. Our own hearts are the first witness called to testify against us at our hearing before God. Not other people. Not things we've done. Our own hearts will be the chief witness against us. And our own hearts are more than enough to find us guilty. But God, though sovereign, though undefeated, offers us mercy in his Son. He is under no obligation to do so. He is a just judge that could leave us in our penalty. And he would be perfectly right to do it. The punishment handed down would be right. But he gives a substitute. And he is gracious. And he is just. And he is gracious at the same time. So this morning, know that God is undefeated. He doesn't lose to anyone. He doesn't have a rival. No one pushes him to overtime. And that includes our own hearts and our own wills. That includes the would-be gods named Pharaoh and the would-be gods like me. This morning, don't let your hearts be hardened. You say, well, 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 wait a minute. How can I do that? I thought God was in control. And he is. And he tells you that if you will cast yourself on the mercy of Christ, he will take you in. He'll replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He'll give you a new birth, a new life, a new heart, new desires, new joys. And most of all, you'll get a new king. And it will be him. And this is what this new king offers from his throne on high. Repent. Come to Christ. Cast yourself on him and plead for his mercy. And if you do that, he will hear you. And you will do that according to your own free will only if he changes your heart. So plead for mercy and know that no Egyptian pharaoh, no English king, no person in the history of the world has rivaled him. He is undefeated, unchallenged. He is the king but he's a good king and he's a gracious king and he holds his hand out to you and he says, come. This morning, I pray that you will do that. We're gonna pray here in just a second. I'll be standing in the back. You can come to Christ today. You can cast yourself on his mercy. Don't let your hearts be hardened today. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, We are quick to claim that we are sovereign, that we are in control, that we are first, that we are primary, that we, our free wills, are in charge. But according to this, what we can know is that you are fully in charge. Father, we know our own hearts. We don't want to be sovereign. We don't want to be fully in charge because we know what our wills will choose every time if you aren't gracious. So, Father, change our hearts. Draw us to you. May we respond in faith. May you be the rightful king of the whole world, of all of history, and of us. 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.